Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is James Tooley. He's the Professor of Educational Entrepreneurship and Policy in the Vincent Center for Economics and Entrepreneurship at the University of Buckingham. About 10 years ago, he published The Beautiful Tree, a personal journey into how the world's poorest people are educating themselves with the Cato Institute. That book is probably my favorite Cato book, and I think it's a must-read classic, so I'm excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Free Thoughts, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, the idea of the subtitle of your book is a personal journey that, you've, that you took. What, what does that mean? What did you learn? Why did you not just call it a policy book? What did you learn as a personal journey uh, in this sort of mission you took? Yes. So, so for about nine years before I published the book, I had been traveling to to see you know this phenomenon of low cost private schools um, that that I dis- was discovering and then discovering anew in different places, and and for me it was very much it, it was it was a personal journey. I was keeping diaries. You know, at the end of every day doing my work, I would keep a diary before I you know had dinner, and these diaries sort of took on a life of them their their own. And as I wanted to write something about what I was discovering instead of writing a dry, potentially dry policy book. I did write policy papers. I wrote academic papers too, but I wanted to convey something of the journey because there was a discovery process for me. There was a discovery process for everyone I told about this phenomenon I was discovering and, 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 and researching. And, and so that seemed the natural way of writing it. Now it wasn't natural to many publishers. Um, I sort of wrote this book and I think, you know, it was rejected 20 or 30 times before the Cato Institute took it on. Um, obviously, I'm incredibly pleased you did. And uh, it's very nice what you said about it earlier on. But yeah, so it's not a it's not a policy book, but obviously it has implications for policy. It has huge implications and it's trying to yeah cross genres, isn't it? It's a sort of personal, almost a memoir of a long journey I was making globally trying to bring in all these elements, these these um, policy elements too. But yeah. Was it also a journey of, of you changing your mind? I, I can't totally get a sense of that from the book. So you did teach in Zimbabwe in the 80s, correct? Yeah. So so it, then it depends how long you take the journey back. So you know, then if you're thinking about the life journey, yes, I changed my mind. I started out as a young socialist um, I, when I had finished my my degree, my mathematics degree, you know, I was excited about seeing the world. But where better to go than Zimbabwe, which was newly independent? And I went there explicitly to help build this Marxist-Leninist regime that uh, Robert Mugabe was was advocating. And I, you know, I was while I was there, I was in two Das Capital reading groups. I was uh, at weekends. I, I was teaching in state school, uh, in public schools during the week. But at weekends, I'd go and um, help out in, um, you know, uh, the sort of communes um, in the rural areas. And yeah, I was definitely a socialist. And I developed, you know, I changed my mind over a number of years. Um, partly theoretically, and then perhaps you know, at first theoretically, at first exploring theoretical ideas about the role of government in education, but eventually, you know, finding what I found and what I report in the beautiful tree, finding these low-cost private schools, finding that people were creating 
magnificent educational opportunities for themselves outside of the state, in spite of the state. Um, that then was probably the, the final change I went through, the final conversion, if you like, to, to being what I would call myself today, a, a, a libertarian or classical liberal. So you're, you were working at the beginning of the book, you're working for the World Bank, I believe it is, doing assessments of, a, of private education in different countries around the world. But they were thinking more about upper class, higher, like higher cost private schools, correct? Yes. So, so th this was a, a research project, first of all, and then some consultancy work that uh, I, 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 I got. Um, and it was with the, the private arm of the World Bank. That's called the International Finance Corporation. And they were sending me to, to amazing places around the world. But yeah, their idea of private education, as everyone's idea of private education was before, in a sense, I started this this work that's reported in the beautiful tree. Everyone's idea of private education is for the elite, or at least the the upper upper middle classes and above. And I was looking at elite universities, elite colleges, elite schools in India and in Cote d'Ivoire and Peru and so on. And it was while I was in those places, in India to be specific, in Hyderabad, looking at a couple of elite um, universities. One was the Indian School of Business, now one of the top business school in Hyderabad in in the world. Um, I was dissatisfied. You know, I'd, I'd become an expert on private education for various reasons, um, but I didn't think my life should be about serving the elite. Um, and so I wondered. This is how the story really begins in the beautiful tree. I, on a day off, it was Independence Day, Republic Day. Sorry, in. Uh, the year 2000, Republic Day um, in India, and off I went into the slums of the old city and discovered a low-cost private school, one low-cost private school, then a second and a third, and was soon connected to a whole federation of these. And this somehow brought the different parts of my life together. It genuinely was an epiphany moment. I was an expert on private education. I wanted to be in some ways serving the poor. And here were the poorest people in the slums of India attending private education, low-cost private schools. It's wonderful how different parts of one's life can come together. And then I carried on exploring that. I, I, I managed to get a, a, a good a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. Um, they took a risk with me. You know, they, they didn't actually know that I, what I'd found in Hyderabad would be found anywhere else. But I I looked in, in, in Nigeria, in Ghana, in Kenya, in rural China. I found the same phenomenon. So that was the journey that I report in the uh, in the beautiful tree. This this phenomenon that you, I mean, quite literally just kind of walked into by exploring the slums and finding one after another of these schools. I mean, so you you just discovered it for yourself, but you of course you didn't invent it. This this had been around for quite a while poor people creating private schools that were accessible to the poor. Um, it was fairly widespread because as you began work on this research, you found this stuff in all sorts of different countries. So were other people aware of this? Was you know, you like you said we tend to think of private education as something that is for the wealthy, something that, you know, like if you can afford it, then you pull your kids out of the public and stick them in the private, but it certainly isn't accessible to the poor. But if it was so widespread, was it was it unknown? Did other people who are interested in private education know about it? And if so, what yeah. did what did they think of it at the time? 
Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And, and you're absolutely right to pick pick me up on that in case there must be no confusion. Absolutely, I did not invent it. I discovered it for a particular audience. So let's say I discovered it for um, you know, audiences in, in America and Britain and so on. Um, did other people know about it? Well, once I sort of started searching, I found, I think, two references um, to it before I started writing. And my first articles were written on this in the year 2000. And there were a couple of references from 1999, I think, but mentioning the phenomenon in passing. Um, and it turned out to be for some people. So so let's, let's take different groups. So there were some in government and the international aid, aid agencies who knew about it, but it was almost a guilty secret, you know, because they didn't want to be start talking about private education for the poor. Everyone knows public education is for the poor. And so this phenomenon, as I said, was mentioned in passing, um, not highlighted. Perhaps they didn't know the extent of it. Well, of course they didn't. You know, they might they may well have known a little bit. So a few people did know about it. Um, others in government and international agencies didn't know about it. And I was, I've had this experience over the years. I still get this experience even in recent years um, where I've been in a country and, you know, um, people might, people might've said something like, well, I've heard your research from India or, or Kenya, but that doesn't happen in my country. It absolutely doesn't happen. And I've actually taken people even without being in the slums in those places myself, I've actually taken people from government and then international agencies to the slums in their own capital cities and showed them something that they absolutely did not know existed and were, were doubtful could even could even exist. Um, and then people in our circles, you know, people in the Catos and, and the IEA, no, they didn't know about it. They really didn't. And they, what we did know in our circles, of course, is that historically, now the work of Professor Edwin George West, E.G. West, um, who wrote his great book in 1965 for the Institute of Economic Affairs, Education and the State, he pointed out low-cost private schools were existing in Victorian England and Victorian uh, 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 and 19th century New York and Massachusetts and so on. Um, but um, we knew about it historically. We did not know about it in the contemporary world. So in a way, you know, it was it was an extraordinary to be able to discover something that your colleagues didn't know about and yet so fitted into our philosophy of life. You know, um, it is extraordinary to have discovered that. Yes. So in the in the setting the scene, I like this image which you write about in the book of taking someone who's a government official who might deny the existence of such schools or deny that they are schools or there's a lot of things we can go through the way that the government officials react to it. But you go to like, so you talk about like Lagos, Nigeria and like the slums of Lagos. So kind of what, what does the scene look like? So what do these schools look like? I mean, you walk in, you say you, you know, walk down the street in Hyderabad and like you find these schools, but they're not classic schools in many ways and they might be hard to find if you're not looking for them and yeah. sometimes they're they are Actually, a little that's, bit ramshackle another, and i'll answer your question but that's another important point because I, I i won't mention his name but a, a key figure let's just say in in our sort of you know classical liberal circles libertarian circles in education an american um uh, 
I took him, and he's connected with India, I took him to see these schools, and he said, yes, I have seen these before. I've noticed these by the roadside, as it were. But I had no vocabulary, I had no concept to fit them into. So in a sense, I just ignored them and assumed they were, they must be public schools because, you know, that uh, they must be public, poor public schools. Um, Oh, public schools for the poor. So, you know, it's a very interesting, uh, you know, that, that, that's a genuine story that someone actually said that to me. But, yeah, what do they look like? So so you, you mentioned um, Lagos, that's how, how I pronounce it, Lagos, the, the former capital city of Nigeria, now the business city, the commercial center, financial center, massive, sprawling city. Um, and there, you know, the, the slums that I describe in the book, um, they are... They are poor, you know. They are the poorest slums you can imagine, really. I mean, the 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 slum, the one slum I described is called Makoko, which is a shanty town built on stilts, stretching into the the black waters of the Lagos Lagoon. Um, and these are houses built on stilts, wooden houses, um, and then on reclaimed land by the side there. Um, that there can be mud huts, there can be uh, buildings build of breeze blocks, perhaps for a couple of feet, and then wooden stilts, and maybe a wooden um, or a, a, a plastic sheet for the for the roof, or a combination of plastic and tarpaulins and wood. Um, and you know, the very basic schools will have no no floor, but you know, mud floor, and will have very basic facilities. Now, you know. When some people see these sort of schools, and this is typical in many of the slums in Africa, um, in India they might be slightly, slightly more permanent constructions, but often they'd be a, they would be a converted home or a converted house. Um, but uh, when a lot of people see these schools, they think, well, this, this building looks horrible, you know, um, therefore it can't be any good, and. Uh, you know, that, that would be a great mistake to think that, as I describe in the book in several places. First of all, these buildings, they might look horrible to us from outside, but they're a darn sight better than the darn sight better than where the, the children live. You know, so they're, they're an improvement on where the children live. But also education is not just about buildings. Education is about teachers and the commitment of teachers and the commitment of the school manager and what I've done tons of research, other people have done a lot of research now. You know, these children in the low cost private schools do outperform those in the government schools, the public schools, even though in the public schools typically the buildings are fine, the bills are good. Um, there isn't the teacher commitment there, there isn't the teacher accountability. And so these these pretty terrible buildings you see are actually housing something quite remarkable, high quality education higher quality than in the public schools how do these schools i guess work in practice so i'm i'm the parent of a young child and when we're talking about these schools are we talking about like elementary school level like k through 12 like what what's the age range first of the students who are in these things they would vary but in the african countries typically they would be what you what you call k or even pre k to about class nine or class 10. That is typically where schooling ends and then you go into that. So that would be what we call in, in, in West Africa, you would call that um, uh, 
primary, pre-primary, primary, and junior secondary school. And then there'll be a senior secondary school, which is like your grades 10 to 12 or grades 9 to 12. They would be less frequent, but again, they, they do occur. But these typical schools think of as being, you know, pre-K to to grade nine, I would say. And so I'm I'm the parent of a child who's six or seven years old, say, and I have the option of going to the local public school, but I, I don't want to for a variety of reasons. So I choose to go to one of these schools. Um, so first, I guess, how do I find them? And then are they are they typically open to anyone? And how much does it cost me to do it? You've described a situation which is very typical because this is really important that in these poor areas, 70% or more of children are in the low-cost private schools. So there are many, many more children in the private schools than in the government schools. The public schools. Um, so, is that just because there's not enough room in the government schools? Seventy percent seems astounding. It is astounding, you know. And and the, the, these were the figures that I I came out with earlier on. People said this can't be true, and it's been the figure has been replicated and repeated by so many studies now. Um, in Kampala and Uganda, the figure is over eighty percent um, in in the private schools. So, you know, this is. Um, it, it's well well documented. This is in urban areas. In the rural areas, the the, uh, the villages and so on, typically that we haven't got many good studies on that. But from India, we have a very good annual survey, the ASER, um, the Annual Survey of Education Report, and that shows around 30% of children in rural India are in private schools. So think of 70% or plus, 70% plus in the urban areas. And that figure seems likely to be true in, in the African countries. So we're getting to 30% in rural areas. But is there it's enough massive. room in the public schools for the kids? There's just plenty of room. There's plenty of room. I mean, in, in, in India, you've got this extraordinary phenomenon, well documented, not by me, but by, by others now, of, of, of believe it or not, government schools that are empty of pupils. Um, um, and then some with very, very few pupils because of this mass exodus to the private schools. It's well documented. It's well known. Research in India of Dr. Geeta Kingdon um, from the, the, uh, the UCL Institute of Education is, is very, very good on that in that regard. Schools are empty of pupils because they fled. They fled the, the the public sector to go to the private schools. And on Aaron's question, so they, so you decide you're going to pull your kid out of public schools. What do you do next? And and just to clarify, um, if I'm so I, I pull my kid out of the public schools or don't put them in to begin with, and I want to I want to put them into one of these. Is there typically like one? in my neighborhood or are there multiple that are competing with each other that I have to yeah. choose between? Exactly. It's, it's exactly the, the latter. In the urban areas, you know, I describe in the beautiful tree how, you know, you're going down one alleyway or down one uh, sort of uh, muddy street. You'd see five or six of these private schools. They are, they are plentiful. They are ubiquitous. They are competing as well as collaborating in some ways. But they are so. So, you know, you you can choose a school. One very important thing is choosing a school near to near to your home, particularly in areas where, you know, you might think the slum is dangerous to your young kids. Um, you might not want them traveling a long way. The public schools are typically quite far away on the they're not usually in the slums they're on the edge of the slums. Um, you don't want your kid traveling through the slums. If they're a very young kid on their own, they could be abducted. They could be hurt. They could be. You know, lots of things can go wrong. 
So you want a school near to your home, and there will be two or three near to your home. And you you then typically compare notes with your you know, your your brother, your sister, your um, your friends, brothers and sisters, and so on. And you compare notes and think, well, this one suits my kid better. I like the way they focus more on English in that school, or they seem to have a good, better reputation. And so you choose that school, but there will be there will be a choice. This is the extraordinary thing. This is a genuine market in in these um, areas. Um, you know, there is a genuine market and genuine choice. And how much? So we've we've done um, quite a bit of work on this affordability question. So I could give you absolute numbers. Um, typically, the schools in in say Nigeria um, they can be as low cost as uh, five or six US dollars a month. The ones we look at perhaps go up, can go up to fifteen, um, fifteen dollars a month. You know, so it's that sort of hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars a year. Um, the school fees, but the the important thing is the affordability. And we've got done a lot of research looking at the poverty line, various poverty lines. Um, which are sometimes country specific, sometimes the international ones, and showing that there are many schools that are affordable for a family on the poverty line if they're only spending 10% of their total expenditure on the school fees for all of their children. It's a complex formulation, but basically it's saying if you're on the if you're a family on the poverty line, your your imaginary family could well be on the poverty line. There will be many schools in their neighbourhood. The majority of the schools in their neighbourhood will be affordable to that family on the poverty line, without them spending more than ten percent of their total expenditure, total income, the same for all persons. And what about scholarships uh, for people below that line? So the schools typically do. Uh, so so uh, I've sort of uh, I've given you an average amount there. Again, the beauty of this market, um, at least I find it beautiful, is there is, again, gradation of fees. So I've described that if you're on the poverty line, there will be schools affordable to you. If you're above the poverty line, there are schools affordable to you there. If you're below the poverty line, obviously not not all the way down to zero, but if you're you know, below, there will also be schools affordable to you. There's a whole range of school fees. So there will be some available even to very poor families. Obviously, there at some point, you'll be too poor to go to school. Very importantly, and I'll get back to the scholarship question there, you mustn't think that the public schools are free. It's a great misnomer um, to call them free. If you're a poor parent and you're making this decision between a private school and the public school, first of all, as I've indicated, the public school is probably further away. So you'll need some transportation costs, which you won't get in the in the um, private school or not to the same extent. But also you need to buy shoes. The public school won't let you in without shoes. You'll need to buy uniforms. School uniform is very common in these countries we work in. And the school, public school won't let you in without uniform. You'll need to buy books. You'll need to buy pencils. And, and you'll probably also need to pay some informal fees to the teacher, the school, maybe a development, building development levy or something like that. So, um, We've, we've done a lot of research in various locations on this, and a typical or average figure is the cost to a parent 
of sending a ch child to a public school, given all these additional costs I've just described, is about 75%, sorry, and these are average figures I, we've, we've got from a study in Liberia and similar figures from a study in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, the, 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 the cost to a parent is 75% of the cost of sending a child to a low-cost private school. Put another way, the, sending a child to a low-cost private school is 1.3 times the amount of sending to a public school. Obviously, in the private schools, there are fees. In the public schools, there are not or not to the same extent. But these extra costs, shoes, books, transportation, uniform, they are roughly the same in both public and private, and that gives that figure. So it's very important to stress this. You know, there's not a choice between free public education and um, expensive private education. Neither is free. And the poorest of the poor cannot afford either. The poorest of the poor cannot afford to send their children to public school. It's very important to, to note. So on scholarships, yeah. So I, I, I did a lot of work on this many, uh, you know, when I started this research 10, 15 years ago. Um, I haven't done so much since, but then we found, I think it was 7% of school places were um, in, in the studies in, in India and, and Nigeria were, uh, it's roughly that figure, were, were scholarships. So the school might explicitly say, you know, I'm, I'm funding some children in, in memory of my late father, or more likely, it's, it's more ad hoc than that. Um, so children start in the school, um, they, you know, they, they do a term and then their father dies or runs away um, and they become orphans or semi-orphans. And the school will typically say, well, carry on here. You're, we're not going to throw you out. And that will be an informal scholarship. So, you know, it, there's a flexibility in the, the, the private schools, which does allow poor people to use them and, you know, even to the extent of providing free or, or, or subsidized schooling. So we've, we've said that the one advantage that these private schools have is distance, that they're just, they're more local than the public schools typically are. Um, another might be cost that they're about the same or they cost nothing if you don't have anything to pay. But how do they compare just educationally like why what makes them if i'm choosing between the public school and the private school and the distance isn't an issue and the cost is an issue why would i choose the private over the public school yeah and, and, and just to clarify uh, i'm not uh, typically the private school is more expensive but it's not you know it's one right, right. three times more right the, they're about the, the same cost. yeah um um yeah so th this this was a, this was the big question was it when i first discovered these schools and you know realized how many there were and sort of got a sense that you know a majority of kids in in poor urban areas were using these schools um the big question was how good are they and and are are parents being hoodwinked this is this is the key thing this is what government officials international agency officials world bank officials said to me when i first as it were came back reporting on this i was very excited about what i was seeing they said sort of calm down Tuli. all you've discovered is business people exploiting the poor and these parents are being hoodwinked their parents are ignoramuses they think just because this is called private 
um, you know, I, I report on one official in in Lagos, Nigeria, saying this just because parent, you know, parents think these schools are private, so they must be better, but they are not, and they are just stupid, and they are being fooled by these proprietors. So obviously, we took this very seriously, this question, and others have taken it seriously since. And study after study after study now shows a pretty uniform picture that children who attend the private schools are academic do academically outperform those in the public schools even after controlling for all the you know appropriate background variables now there are there are some controversy about what i've just said but uh, you know i've responded to you know journal articles which seem to suggest maybe the opposite or maybe there's no difference and typically when you dig into the data you find yes there is a clear difference when you've um, when you're comparing like with like so Parents are not being fooled, you know, as was you and I would perhaps, uh, you know, would be surprised if poor parents with very little money were being fooled in this way or being hoodwinked or just going for a status symbol. And they're not. These schools are better academically and study after study shows that. So it's a tremendous success story. A majority of kids, poor kids in the urban areas in these private schools, they're outperforming those in the government schools. They're affordable to the poor. You know, what's not to like? What accounts for them producing better results? I mean, granted, that's that's a, a question that maybe the answer may be different based on for different schools because they're not all uniform. But in general, is it do they have is it maybe smaller class sizes? Are the teachers more qualified or more engaged? Are the students or the families more engaged because they happen to be have chosen this school and are paying for it? Like these are all the things we might think of for looking at schools yeah. in the US. Like to other what reasons, what what accounts for this? Yeah. And 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 we we you know we we can't say this definitively, but it would seem to be the latter uh, part of your uh, your previous statement, not the former part. So typically class sizes will not be smaller in the private schools. Uh, sometimes they are, but it's, it's, not, it, it's not always the case. Um, uh, um, the teachers absolutely are better qualified, better certified, better trained, more experienced in the public schools. This is a very important thing to note. They're better paid, they're, they've got their certificates, they are more experienced in the public schools than in these low-cost private schools, and yet still the children in the private schools outperform. So it's to do with those other things. The teachers are more engaged in the public schools, typically in the countries I've been working in, described in the in the beautiful tree. In the public schools, the teachers are there for life. They're heavily unionized, impossible to fire. So if you don't turn up, if you don't teach at at worst, you'll get moved to another school, and it'll take several years to do so. Um, you know, but more likely you'll just get stay in the school and carry on happily taking your salary and eventually your pension, and the children will suffer. In the private schools, if you don't turn up and don't teach, you get fired. <laughs> Simple, or at least you might get a little bit of understanding once, once, but certainly not two or three times. So it's very, very simple accountability. Very, very simple. Um, Commitment, very, very simple. You want to call it fear of losing your job? I mean, that's the negative way of looking at it, but it makes you teach, makes you engage with the students, and surely it's a good thing. Um, and also you said about parents being engaged. This is something I, you know, I'm not aware of a lot of research on this, but intuitively it seems right, doesn't it? If you're a poor parent and you're spending, even if it's only 10% of your 
um, your income or your expenditure on these private schools um, fees, um, then you know, even if it's only that amount, you're going to make sure you're going to get value for money, aren't you? You're going to ask your kids what they learned today. You're going to make sure they attend school, they do their homework. Um, and so that more engagement will be there as well. What about innovation? Do, do we see competing private schools trying out new ideas for how to educate kids in a way that you wouldn't see in the public schools? You do see this, and, and you would see it more in the – India and the South Asia context than you would in the, the Africa context, just because in, in India is getting you know, more tax, tech savvy and, more, and slightly wealthier. Um, yeah, you do see innovation, but uh, it's perhaps not as strong as, as one might hope, you know, and I, I, you know, it's perhaps not as strong as we, we, we'd hope, but there are there are constraints on the private schools. One, one obviously is is, is money, um, uh, find the financial situation, and so it's harder to to innovate. Um, but also, there there are things like national curricula, there are national tests, and so on, and and you know they they tend to work on the assumption that schools will be following a particular curriculum and a particular teaching method and so it may not be worth your while to innovate too much um, if this you know the, the the national curriculum and the national tests are the ones you've got to follow and parents will keep you to those because these are important to poor parents so this this is if you like from a market perspective it would be one of the slightly disappointing features I've been very gung-ho up to now, but one of the slight disappointing features of these private schools is they operate in a regulatory environment, which in a way stifles innovation, or at least has the potential. To, I'm not saying there's no innovation, but you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't lead to it naturally. Um, and that's disappointing. And one would like to see schools being freed from the um, regulatory environment and you know, I've been writing about this and working on this to some extent in certain places. Um, yeah, but yeah. So well, if you want to be well, that brings to the next question. Bit, you know, brought down to earth. You know, everything's been very positive so far. I might said <laughs> the regulatory environment can stifle innovation or at least not encourage it. That well, on that that was, goes nicely to the next question, which is the regulatory environment. So obviously, this is different per country, but I mean, is this? You know, absolutely no regulations whatsoever on these schools. The government doesn't even rec like do have any certification, building inspection, whatever or curriculum, teacher licensing. I imagine it goes between different gamuts, but in general, d do they have government officials coming to these schools and inspecting them and making sure the teachers are licensed or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, one one of the uh, I think it's one of the anecdotes I I have there in the the beautiful tree at the beginning. So this is going back to when I first started going to these schools, I was very impressed to hear stories of how frequently the government inspectors came to see some of these schools in the, the slums of Hyderabad in India. And I even met a few while I was in my, you know, my visits myself. And I was very impressed by this until someone pointed out to me that, um, now this is 15, 19 years ago, um, that the inspectors come to be made happy, you know, to receive a bribe, an informal payment. Someone even showed me how they do it. You know, they, you put an envelope in a drawer. The teacher would sit at the desk and open the envelope, take the drawer, and or the inspector, sorry, would take that and go. Now, 
I'm not saying that happens all the time, but that was certainly. So if you hear inspectors frequently go to schools, it's not necessarily um, quite what it seems. Um, but no, I, I think the the regulations are something that have that vary between country. The phenomenon I've described is extraordinarily similar. You know, if you go to Liberia, Sierra, these are all countries I've done my research in, Liberia, Sierra Leone, South Sudan, Nigeria, North and South, Ghana, Kenya, Uganda, Somalia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, you know, all these countries, the, the system is somewhat similar of low-cost private schools. You know, the, the response from the supply side is somewhat similar, but the regulatory environment can be very different. A country like Ghana is very, the regulations are very light touch, very conducive to schools and, um, you know, a, a sort of pleasure to work under. Yes, there is, there is, there are regulations and yes, you have to meet certain certification, building regulations and so on, but they're applied with a very light touch and they're, they're not particularly onerous. Go now to India, India has now got a very onerous regulatory environment. Um, the, the new Right to Education Act, which came in a few years back, sounds like a very positive thing, doesn't it? The Right to Education. But in fact, it has brought in lots of regulations on private schools. In fact, you know, I, I knew people who, who were behind the Right to Education Act and they said they did this deliberately. You know, they deliberately brought in regulations that would lead to the closure of low-cost private schools, and thousands have been closed. Um, so uh, this, you know, the, so the regulatory environment goes from perhaps India is is pretty bad um, to Ghana, which is very good, and a lot of countries in in, in the middle. But there, but but there is typically a national curriculum and national testing, and now the regulations say you have to follow it, but. That's one reason why schools follow it for sure. But a more common reason why schools would follow it is because parents want it because it's the only show in town. So, you know, schools don't just follow regulations just because they, they're supposed to. Sometimes there's pressure from parents also. In the years since you've published the book and continue to do work in this area, what has the reaction been to it by by people who are studying education by members of government who are involved in education like has it been has it been positive has there been pushback what does it look like yeah it there's been a mixture some in, some some incredibly positive some rather negative but you're right to draw attention to something which you know i don't think everyone has this in their career so you know leading up to the publication of the beautiful tree in 2009 by the cato institute um this phenomenon of low-cost private schools was virtually unknown hardly talked about and um not on the agenda at all of of international agencies governments um or, or, or even think tanks like cato in the years since that it is now on everyone's agenda. Everyone now recognizes and knows about low-cost private schools, whether you're an international agency like USAID, USAID, and the British aid agency, DFID, or you know, the European, all the aid agencies know about it, and pretty much all national governments, or many national governments know about it now, and the teacher unions, the umbrella group for the International Teacher Unions, Education International, and the human rights organizations, they all know about it now. 
some have been incredibly positive. So, for instance, um, next week, I'm invited to give a talk at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan, because U.S. AID um, has been very positive about the role of low-cost private schools in Afghanistan, amongst other places, and they're sponsoring a, a conference and visits there to, to because they, they are excited about the potential of low-cost private schools. The same in Lagos, Nigeria, um, DFID, the British aid agency, they have funded a big project called Deepen, and you know some of the money was badly spent, as I'm sure you gather from aid projects sometimes. But but at least the awareness was there that this was at least a semi-positive thing to support the the movement of local to private schools. So and and those could be you know you could get positive things from all over the world from some governments from some international agencies being very positive about these. Um, others, meanwhile, have been negative, you know, so you get states, different states of Nigeria, Rivers State, for instance, I was there in Port Harcourt recently, um, it was, is trying, was trying to close down the low-cost private schools there. In Cameroon, I heard the same story. Um, India, I've just described, there's been some sort of negative reaction at the, at the federal level to low-cost private schools. Um, and of course, the unions are horrified. <laughs> about Logos Private Schools, um, Education International is always banging on about how bad they are. The United Nations Special Rapporteur for Education are always saying how bad they are. And and recently there was something called the Abidjan Principles that were brought in by various human rights organizations, which were reluctantly admitting these private schools were there, but nonetheless seeking to advise governments on how to regulate them and constrain them as much as possible. All the examples that we've talked about so far today have been in poor third world countries. But there are in, in the Western world and wealthier countries, there are poor people um, and there are poor public schools, right? low quality public schools. Do we see low-cost private schools appear in wealthier countries? Uh, and if not, why why don't we? Yeah, and and here you know you you'll have to take what I'm saying with a I, I'm I'm pretty ignorant of what's going on in America. Um, you know, my work has been mostly uh, uh, overseas, as, as you discuss. Um, but my my sense, you know, from what I know, is that there there aren't many of these, many if any of these schools. Um, there might there might be a, I mean, there 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 are parochial schools in America, but they're slightly different, aren't they? There for a particular reason. But um, I I have found when I was looking for these schools, I did find them in New Zealand. Um, so that was interesting, and they were typically. Um, uh, schools for Ma the Maori, Maori population, uh, created by Maoris because the conditions in the in the public schools were not seen as favourable to to these poor communities. And so, I did find one or two, you know, a small number, three or four, in Auckland, in New Zealand. Um, but that that said, so they're they're not common. They're not common and. Obviously, there could be various reasons for that. One could be because the state, in a sense, has crowded out these schools 
public schools are, are not as bad as they would be in Lagos or, or, or New Delhi. Um, and in any case, there are possibilities to escape those public schools. There are charter schools. There are um, in America, there are charter schools. In England, we've got the free schools. They're called the free schools and academies. So if you like, government has allowed educational entrepreneurs to create alternatives. Um, and in a sense, that, that these alternatives will still be free at the point of delivery. So they, they will crowd out the potential private schools. Um, so and there could be a different mentality, you know, in, certainly in Britain, and I think to a lesser extent in America, but in Britain, you know, we're used to, you know, we're so used to education being provided free at the point of delivery that it, it is odd to question it. Whereas in these other countries I'm working in, it's not odd to question it at all. And you don't trust the state with much. And, um, and so, you know, why would you trust it with education? But all this is a long sort of, you know, I don't know, but... Um, I decided a couple of years ago, well, it, it was actually probably doing talks like this or you know, giving lectures in America or Britain. People say, saying, why doesn't this happen in America? And then I you know, had a, um, some time when I couldn't travel for various reasons in England. And I, so I did some market research. I am a one trick pony. And so if I can't travel, I, I went out to the, to the streets of Newcastle in the north of England and just asked people, you know, if there was a low-cost private school, would you be interested in it? So would you be interested in private education? Yes, of course. Um, why don't you send your kids to private schools? Duh, it's too expensive, you know. What could you afford? And I gradually worked out a model based on my experiences in, in the developing world and thought, well, actually, I think I could create a school that more people could afford and that I could just about, you know, break even or even making a small service. So I opened a school in the northeast of England in Durham. Um, and it's been going for just one year now. We, we, it, took us, it took us an amazing amount of time to get registered. I hadn't realized how onerous the regulations were in England. It took us 485 days to get registered. Um, but the, and, and the teacher unions picketed all our, all our parent evenings and our first days of school. So the numbers were tiny that we managed to get. But we've since had the, the government has a mandatory inspection for all new private schools. And we passed this with flying colors. And, um, and now we've completed a year. So my feeling is this, the school that I've created up north has shown that it's possible to run a school for £3,000. So that's about a fifth of the cost of the average private schools in England. And it's also only two thirds of the per capita funding in the in the public in the state schools. Um, How does that three thousand pounds compare to that 10 percent of income line that you spoke? Yeah, about um, actually, that's 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 a good point. It's, it would be more expensive. I mean, I think the average. So you know, th this is not affordable by poor families in England, um, but it is affordable by um, in terms of income quintiles. We've looked at what um, what 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 um, families have in terms of discretionary income. Um, that's not you know that's disposable income once you've actually paid for all the necessities, um, and. It's affordable by families on the second lowest income quintile, just about. 
the middle income quintile, it's it's definitely affordable. But that's in comparison, the private schools in England today are only otherwise affordable by the the topmost quintile, and obviously only a small part of that as well. You know, probably the top, not even the top decile, they're affordable. So, do you see what I mean? It's this is so this so this is a different experiment. I'm not. I'm not trying to find something that's affordable by the poorest, but I am trying to show that a, that well that it's there is possible. a different model, even possible yeah. in England, where it costs a lot higher and so on. Well, this raises an interesting question, which we've been circling around. So, why doesn't this happen in America and England? Because the public schools in the third world are not crowding out the private schools. They have this place they could send their kids for free. They also have some regulations, as we talked about, varies per country. And what we saw in America in the UK, and E.G. West writes about this to some extent, but you did see when there was private education in America, either the crowding out of that slowly by the funding of public schools or the regulatory environment becoming a crushing blow. I mean, either yeah. intentionally, like we, like you mentioned in India, that was the thing that I first thought is that this happened in some states in the United States. It's like we can't abide by, especially multi uh, multifaceted education system. We need common schools, the common school movement. And so, if you have a, a weird school that doesn't play by the rules and educate people to be good American citizens, then we should shut you down for the good of the mm. people. And that, mm. that's sort of the interesting question at the heart of education is that in all of your work here throughout the world and also in England, how much do you see opposition to these private schools being more about the fact that they're not teaching some sort of agreed upon curriculum that the, that makes good citizens in, out of the country um, and, and that that's the problem. It's not that they're giving a bad education. It's that we can't have a good citizenry without a unified education system, which is why we need to shut these down. Sure, they can learn to read, but they're not they're not learning to read the right things. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And it, it could be true in certain places, but as uh, and that, that could that, I mean I mean historically you're absolutely right historically in America and England and Wales state intervention deliberately crowded out the the, the private provision that was there this is what E.G. West and others document very clearly and and that's you know I think that's pretty uncontrover uncontrovertible you know that's that's um pretty clear um but re remember that. In the countries I'm looking at around the world, and, and it's true in England and Wales as well to a certain extent, but there are there's a national curriculum, there's national testing, and so, and there's nothing theoretically, and in fact this was Milton Friedman's argument of, for vouchers in a way, wasn't it? There, there's nothing theoretically to say that a, a government can't control education. And, and that it also has to provide it at the same time. I mean, so you can have national curriculum. You could have national curricula and all private schools. So you can have all the schools teaching what the government wants them to teach, but still being totally private. So I don't, I don't think that's that's quite right, or at least it's not the whole story. Um, and it might, you know, might be more true in America than it is um, in, in in say Nigeria. Um, but I, I think it's, I, I think there's something, there's something strange going on. But education clearly is about socialization, in part, and clearly governments, you know, for the last 150 years in England and Wales, and 150, 200 years elsewhere, have been using 
public education as a vehicle for socialization and we have got so used to it and so um yeah we just accept it that public education is the way from the vast majority of people that it's very difficult to question that and challenge it um but you know i i see so you know i've done this experiment up north i'm now getting um people contacting me from you know north south east and west um in the british isles saying that's interesting um would you like to do something in our community or can you help us do something similar this is about on a very small level at the moment um and i've, I've had one or two people from america saying the same thing and so my instinct my intuition is to say actually there is going to be a movement starting here here meaning america and england um which actually starts to emulate what we've seen in india and africa and other parts of the world it's actually going to be something that you know i might not see much of it going on in my lifetime but i i wouldn't be at all surprised if this movement grows as it that has grown elsewhere and so that we see an increasingly less dependence on the state in education even in america even in england um but that's that's all conjecture that's my intuition but based on <laughs> two decades of work in low cost private schools around the world where i see them growing this is the point you know um that 70% figure i gave you earlier um for kids in private schools in lagos nigeria it might only have only been 55 60% a few years back it's growing you know growing all the time Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.